This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. They were America's first spy agency, a group of men trained to live in the shadows. Their techniques were groundbreaking. Their leader, the most famous founding father of them all. If you enjoy these episodes on Washington spies, be sure to check out the series Espionage. There you'll find more true stories of intrigue, secrecy, and covert operations. Follow Espionage free and exclusively on Spotify. On July 9th, 1755, the French and Indian War was raging along the western borders of Britain's North American colonies. The French army, with the aid of the local indigenous tribes, had forcibly occupied British territory. That morning, British Army General Edward Braddock and the roughly 1,400 men under his command were moving west across Pennsylvania when they were ambushed by about 250 French soldiers and 600 of their Native American allies. The British were caught utterly unprepared. When the first shots rang out, Braddock turned to his aide-de-camp, a young major named George Washington. The two men quickly improvised a battle plan, but it was already too late. Even though they had more men and weapons, the British had no information on either the surrounding region or the French forces. Braddock and Washington were going into the fight blind. After a three-hour battle, the British retreated, They had lost half of their troops, including 60 of the 88 officers. Braddock himself had been shot in the lung. He died four days later. Washington wrote to his mother describing the harrowing experience of the hopeless fight. I escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. There is nothing more necessary than good intelligence to defeat the enemy and nothing that requires greater pains to obtain. George wouldn't soon forget this hard lesson in the value of espionage, one that guided him as he went on to command a rebellion against the king and become one of the greatest spy masters in history. This is Espionage, the ParCast original, exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. 
throughout the show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. You can find all episodes of Espionage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Espionage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the Culper Ring, the network of spies commissioned by General George Washington during the American Revolution. This week, we'll hear about the circumstances that drove Washington to form America's first spy agency. We'll also meet the men who join up and follow them as they develop groundbreaking espionage techniques. Next week, we'll hear about the massive successes and the few ignoble failures of the Culper Ring. We'll learn about their direct contribution to American independence, and we'll hear how the Culper techniques created the foundation of modern espionage. In the spring of 1770, the American colonies were in an uproar. On March 5th, British Army regulars fired into a crowd of protesters in the city of Boston. Five unarmed colonists were ultimately killed, with three dead on the scene. The news and outrage spread quickly through all 13 colonies. The colonists saw the massacre as proof that England was the enemy. The fledgling American states had long tolerated the distant rule of King George III, But by 1770, the demands upon their resources reached a new level of absurdity. British soldiers could enter anyone's house and demand to be sheltered and fed. The colonists were taxed a different amount on imported goods from month to month, and they had no representatives in England to protest this taxation. Furthermore, the colonies were thousands of miles away from England, Many of them saw themselves as a separate nation, an American nation, and they were tired of following the whims of a distant ruler. They wanted independence, and they were willing to go to war with England to get it. On December 16, 1773, a group of ardent rebels led by Sam Adams snuck aboard a British ship in Boston Harbor. Under the cover of darkness, they dumped 342 chests of English tea into the water as a protest against high taxes. King George responded drastically to the so-called Boston Tea Party. He placed the entire Massachusetts colony under military rule. The harbor was closed to all trade until the colonists paid for the destroyed tea. As the weeks wore on without food shipments, people began to starve. The rebellious patriots were, in response, even more incensed. In September of 1774, leaders of the movement gathered at a secret Continental Congress to discuss the inevitable next move. War. But one of the representatives was not who he claimed to be. The Redcoats had planted a mole within their ranks, 
one of the Continental Congress members posing as a patriot was in fact a Tory, still loyal to the king. Several months after the Congress, on April 6, 1775, this Tory mole discovered four stolen British cannons and a cache of muskets stored in the town of Concord, Massachusetts. The Patriots were also gathering enough rations for an army. They were preparing an attack. The mole passed this intelligence to General Thomas Gage, the commander of all British troops in North America. Gage, in response, marshaled his troops to move on Concord under the cover of darkness. But the Patriots had some spies of their own. Late in the evening on April 18th, a doctor named Warren reported to the Patriots that the British were marching toward Concord. He said they also planned to arrest Sam Adams and John Hancock, two prominent leaders of the independence movement in the town of Lexington along the way. In the early dawn hours of April 19th, the Patriot Network sent two writers, the infamous Paul Revere and William Dawes, to warn the two communities of the impending British attack. Adams and Hancock escaped, and when the British marched into Concord in their typical red coats and rigid formations, they were met by hundreds of armed Patriot militiamen. Nobody knows who fired the first shot, but one British officer said there was suddenly heavy fire from all sides, from walls, fences, houses, trees, and barns. The American Revolution had begun. While the British retreated to Boston to regroup, the patriots of the Colonial Congress turned to a highly regarded representative from Virginia, who was experienced in war and capable of leading the new Continental Army, George Washington. But Washington was reluctant to rejoin the military machine. He and his wife, Martha, were living a quiet, happy life together. Besides, he came up in Britain's rigid and formal ranks. He couldn't fathom the difficulty of forming an army from the ragtag bands of militia spread across the colonies. Nevertheless, King George had proven himself to be a ruthless tyrant, extracting any money, resources, and labor the colonies could provide without offering any representation in return. The king would not let the colonies go willingly. Washington knew that if he wanted freedom and self-governance, he would have to lead the fight for it. On June 19, 1775, 43-year-old Washington became the commander-in-chief of all American forces. At that time, his army only consisted of mostly civilian and inexperienced men, not to mention their numbers were a mere fraction of the British military presence in North America. But Washington knew he would need more than manpower to win the war against England. He would need intelligence and cunning deception. After all, Espionage was already proving to be a vital player in this war, so Washington commissioned his first spy. On July 15th, less than a month after taking command, Washington used $333 of his own personal funds, 
which would be over $10,000 in modern currency, to pay an anonymous agent. The spy's mission was to go into the town of Boston to establish a secret correspondence for the purpose of conveying intelligence of the enemy's movements and designs. This explicit mission brief remains one of the clearest espionage definitions ever written, and Washington knew from his days fighting the French in the wilderness that accurate information about the enemy was often the only difference between victory and defeat. But espionage was a new concept. The tricks of the trade hadn't been developed yet, so Washington and his agents came up with a series of their own techniques. One of the most effective tricks Washington's agents developed was forgery. The Patriots intercepted dispatches bound for General Gage in Boston. Then they steamed open the sealed envelopes, read the letters, and forged fake ones with planted information. They even had a forged royal seal to make the letters appear more legitimate. Sometimes, the troops even intercepted Gage's replies and forged those before sending them on to England, too. The misinformation was a key tactic for keeping the British confined to Boston. Gage and his allies could never be certain of Washington's troop movements outside the city. This allowed Washington to successfully lay siege to Boston and keep Gage's army trapped there for almost a year. On March 17, 1776, while still waiting on reinforcements from England, General Gage finally gave the order to abandon Boston. The British forces sailed for Canada, leaving the city wide open. Washington's espionage techniques were a total success. They'd given him a significant foothold against the British, and with Boston firmly under its control, the rebellious Continental Army was able to head for New York City, a bastion of British sympathizers. But in New York, George Washington's confidence in his burgeoning spycraft would result in tragedy. When we come back, a young spy working for Washington makes a fatal mistake. Now, back to the story. By September 1776, the American Revolution was in full swing. The colonies had officially declared independence from Britain, and General George Washington was the commander-in-chief of the growing Continental Army. He was convinced that espionage was a key tool in winning the war against Britain. The successful siege of Boston, accomplished by the tactful use of Patriot spies, was all the evidence he needed. But the Patriots were facing a new fight in New York. Washington had established a base of operations in Manhattan, but the British had strong encampments in New Jersey and Long Island. With the enemy closing in on two sides, Washington was desperate for accurate information about the British troop movements. He asked for a volunteer to head behind enemy lines and pretend to be a Tory or British loyalist. But at first, Washington couldn't find a single Continental soldier willing to take the job. One of his men even said, I am willing to go and fight them, but as far as going among them and being taken and hung up like a dog, I will not do it. 
Most soldiers were reluctant to go undercover as spies because at the time this kind of deception was considered a dastardly and unbecoming way of fighting a war. The British army, and thus many of the colonial soldiers who had been trained in it before the revolution, considered spying to be ungentlemanly. But Washington did not believe wars were waged only by gentlemen. Finally, he found a young officer who agreed with him. Twenty-one-year-old Captain Nathan Hale was the son of a wealthy family from Connecticut. He had graduated from Yale University and joined the Continental Army immediately. He was a young, brave, and talkative patriot. Hale volunteered to take on Washington's special mission on September 10th and headed north out of New York toward Connecticut. On the night of the 15th, he abandoned his uniform and donned a brown suit. From here on, he would be a Dutch school teacher. But he had something most school teachers didn't, a letter personally signed by George Washington. The letter instructed all Continental Army officers to help the young spy get to Long Island. And they listened. Hale moved through the rebel lines without trouble. On the night of the 16th, he boarded a Continental ship called the Schuyler, along with another ship, Montgomery, the vessel made its way across Long Island Sound toward enemy territory. A little after midnight on September 17th, as the waves splashed against the side of the ship, Captain Hale eyed the dark landmass of the island. He was nervous. This was his first espionage mission. He thought about all the questions a Dutch schoolteacher might be asked. After all, he needed to make sure his legend was secure. According to the U.S. Department of Defense, a legend is a contrived scenario or story designed to explain personal background and past or present activities in terms intended to conceal involvement in a clandestine activity. It incorporates as much truth as possible. It must be plausible. Hale had a Yale diploma, and he had been a teacher in Connecticut, so his legend was indeed plausible. But if he stammered over his explanation for why a Dutch teacher was traipsing about on Long Island in the middle of a war, he would instantly arouse suspicion. Unfortunately, Captain Hale was already arousing suspicion. A few miles away, the British ship Halifax was sailing up the coast of Long Island. The redcoat captain had a report of two rebel ships approaching the island, stopping briefly, and then sailing off immediately. When the Halifax arrived at the spot around 4 a.m., the two continental vessels were already gone. But aboard the Halifax was Robert Rogers, a vicious mercenary working for the redcoats. He wondered why two ships would approach enemy territory for mere minutes in the dead of night before hightailing it for open water. Could they have been dropping off something? Or someone? Rogers disembarked from the Halifax on September 18th and headed inland. He was certain there was a Patriot spy somewhere nearby, and he was determined to find who it was. The next day, the 19th, Captain Hale was riding along the coast, 
keeping his eyes peeled for redcoats and encampments. Hale carried a small notebook in which he jotted down notes and observations. He crossed paths with several civilians and tried to be friendly and forgettable. But in the midst of the war, tensions were high. People knew outsiders immediately, and several found the Dutch schoolteacher out of place among the tight-knit loyalist communities. When Rogers came through town asking questions, Hale was immediately identified as the interloper. Rogers caught up to him the next evening at a small inn where he was spending the night. Hale was settled into a hot meal at the tavern when Rogers ambled in for a drink. He struck up a conversation with the so-called Dutch schoolmaster. Playing the charming rogue, Rogers confided that he was a continental militiaman. He even went so far as to claim that he, too, was gathering information about the British. Hale bought the lie and surreptitiously offered a toast to the rebellion. The alcohol was warming him up nicely, and he was happy to find a friend among enemies. Plus, now he had someone to help him gather information for his report to General Washington. Rogers gleefully joined him in the toast and encouraged Hale to keep talking. By the end of the night, the tipsy young captain had spilled all his secrets. Hale was caught red-handed, but he didn't know it until the next day. When Hale arrived at another tavern on the 21st, Rogers was waiting. He introduced Hale to several other men he claimed were also friendly rebels. The men surrounded Hale as they had a drink. Then, at Rogers' signal, the men abruptly grabbed Hale and slapped iron manacles on his wrists. A cold terror washed over Captain Hale. He had failed his mission, and now he would be delivered to the British and hung as a spy. He was right to be afraid. Rogers rode hard towards New York City with his captive in tow. They arrived in the early morning hours, where a sleepy British general signed the death warrant for George Washington's young spy. The next morning, just after breakfast, Captain Hale was taken to a tall tree with a ladder beneath it. A noose hung from one of the branches. With his hands still cuffed behind his back, Hale climbed the ladder and the noose was placed around his neck. At the top, he was allowed to say his final words. Contrary to the apocryphal legends, Hale did not say he regretted that he had but one life to give for his country, but instead that he thought it the duty of every good officer to obey any orders given him by his commander-in-chief. Captain Hale was a good soldier to the end, if not a particularly good spy. At 11 a.m. on September 22, 1776, the ladder was kicked out from under him, and Captain Nathan Hale dropped to his death. His corpse was left hanging from the tree for several days as an example to any other would-be patriot spies. George Washington's early foray into espionage had cost the life of a young American. But he feared that this was just the beginning, that before this intelligence war was over, 
the trees of New York would be decorated with more corpses of executed spies from both sides. These spy games came at a heavy cost. Still, if this is what it took to win the war, the Patriots would pay the price. Except it didn't look like they were winning. After Hale's execution, the situation around New York only deteriorated. Washington was forced to abandon his fort on Manhattan and retreat to a camp in Pennsylvania along the snowy Delaware River. The troops were tired and hungry, and morale was at an all-time low. Even Washington was despondent. He wrote a letter to his brother on December 18th and said, I think the game is pretty near up. But Washington hardened his resolve. He was the commander-in-chief, and he knew his men needed a victory. So Washington set out to get them a win. On the other side of the river in New Jersey, German mercenaries, called Hessians, formed an impenetrable line of defense for the British Army. Washington decided to prove that the mercenaries weren't as strong and reliable as the Redcoats thought. Beginning with a surprising order during the second cold week in December, General Washington commanded his soldiers to bring him a local butcher named John Honeyman. Honeyman, like Washington, was a veteran of the French and Indian War. But he was an avowed Tory. He sold his meat exclusively to the Hessians and Redcoats, and he let the entire region know his loyalty was to the crown. On December 22nd, a Continental Patrol came across Honeyman herding some cows with a bullwhip. After a scuffle, which allegedly involved plenty of whip-cracking, cursing, and pistol shots, the patrol brought Honeyman to Washington. As the story goes, Washington gave another bemusing order. He instructed his men to leave him alone with Honeyman. They had instructions to shoot to kill if he tried to escape, but for now, Washington wanted a moment alone. His soldiers obliged. A few minutes later, Washington emerged calm and confident. He told his soldiers to lock up Honeyman for the night. Again, the men complied without question. Despite their confusion, they trusted their commander. Sometime in the early dawn hours of December 23rd, a small fire broke out near the army stables. Flaming hay blew through the air, threatening to ignite more fires. The night watch rushed to put out the fire, leaving Honeyman's jail cell unguarded. When they returned to their posts, John Honeyman was gone. He had escaped into the freezing night and gone straight to the Hessian mercenary commander across the river. He had information about the Continental Army, and he wanted to talk. He told the Hessian that Washington's men were starving and ragged. Honeyman called them an army of farmers. The mercenary commander was delighted. They had nothing to fear from the rebel army, and they could enjoy Christmas properly the next day. But at dawn on December 26th, while the Hessians slept off their celebrations, Washington gathered his men into a fleet of boats and crossed the Delaware, right into the mercenary camp. The battle lasted less than an hour. 
More than 20 Hessians were killed, and nearly 100 were wounded, including the commander. Washington's army captured nearly 900 mercenary prisoners, and only four Continental soldiers were wounded. Washington was ecstatic. He had secured a desperately needed victory, and it was all thanks to his sleeper agent. According to historian Thomas B. Allen, a sleeper is an agent undercover in enemy territory and awaiting orders, usually for a single vital mission. John Honeyman was Washington's sleeper. They had a long history of friendship since the previous war, and Washington had asked him to pose as a Tory when the revolution broke out. He had organized Honeyman's escape from the Patriot jail cell and provided him a secret signed letter ensuring that he and his family were safe from Patriot reprisals. Washington had played his scheme with Honeyman close to the vest because absolute secrecy was paramount. Espionage was the key to winning the war and intelligence was only valuable when it was secret. In early 1777, he wrote, there are some secrets on the keeping of which depends the salvation of an army. Secrets which cannot be entrusted to paper, which none but the commander-in-chief should be acquainted with. Washington wasn't merely the Continental Commander-in-Chief, he was their spy master, and his tactics were working. Still, it wasn't feasible for him to run every espionage agent personally, as he had with Honeyman. If Washington was going to win this revolution, he needed to expand his network. And he couldn't do it alone. When we come back, George Washington develops the first American spy agency and changes the course of espionage history. Now, back to the story. During the winter of 1776, 44-year-old General George Washington was commander-in-chief of all Continental forces fighting for independence. His army was outmanned, outgunned, and lacked the formal training of the Redcoat soldiers. Washington knew that in a head-to-head battle against Britain, the colonies were going to lose. So Washington became a spymaster. He was certain that espionage was vital to the war effort, but he also knew he couldn't continue running his espionage network on his own. There were simply too many tasks at hand. The battles against the Redcoats were ramping up again as the cold weather retreated, and Washington had to focus on battlefield strategy. He would need to delegate, expanding his spy network with trusted men who could run agents without daily oversight. In effect, he was forming the first American spy agency. Before the CIA or the NSA, there was the Culper Ring. The name Culper was an homage to Washington's fond memories of his upbringing in Culpeper County, Virginia. When deciding on a code name for this new network of spies, Washington simply shortened the name to Culper. It had a name, next it needed a leader, a man with experience and courage, a man with a deep hatred for the British that would guide his passion to the cause. That man was Major Benjamin Talmadge. 
Talmadge joined the army from the Connecticut colony, where he had worked alongside the young Nathan Hale. When word of Hale's execution reached him, he was furious and distraught. Talmadge pledged vengeance for his old friend. He harbored a burning desire to embarrass, deceive, and kill the British Redcoats. This passion was perfect for Washington's needs, and the tall, strong major was a man of few words, which was even more of an asset. On April 7, 1777, Washington pulled him out of his cavalry posting and presented him with a new mission. Find out what was happening in New York behind enemy lines. The job was deceptively simple. Major Talmadge simply had to recruit men in and around New York and then use them to spy on British troops. And Talmadge was thrilled with the mission. He was born and raised on Long Island, near a small town called Setauket, and excited to return to his old stomping grounds. He felt comfortable and prepared for the tough, sneaky work ahead of him, and he knew just who to ask for help. His old friends. The first was a Long Island farmer named Abraham Woodhull. Woodhull still lived in Setauket, and he'd made a small living trading his crops for illicit goods between the British and civilians. This made Woodhull an ideal candidate. After all, if a man could smuggle goods across enemy lines, he could smuggle information. Woodhull also had a personal vendetta to settle. His cousin, a general in the Continental Army, had been wounded and captured by the British in late August 1776. He was not given any medical care and suffered horribly from gangrene and malnutrition before he died a month later. His cousin's horrible death gave Woodhull a visceral hatred of the Redcoats. When Talmadge approached him in August 1778, Woodhull had a regular route into and out of New York. While Woodhull was a naturally nervous man, his courage was bolstered by the thought of revenge and profit. He agreed to spy for the rebels and report to Talmadge in Washington via letters. The key to safety within the Culper Ring was anonymity between each of the men. Washington directed operations through Talmadge without knowing each spy personally. Only Talmadge knew each Culper member, and even he didn't know the men's networks of contacts. This multi-layered approach to security ensured that if any agent was captured, he couldn't reveal the entire network. Another tool for maintaining secrecy was code names. Abraham Woodhull took on the alias Samuel Culper for his correspondence. He introduced the name on October 29, 1778, when he wrote his first report and sent it off to Washington. The Culper Ring had officially been born. Its first missions went to Woodhull, who braved dangerous forays into occupied New York. But quickly, the network expanded. Woodhull's sister Mary lived in Manhattan with her husband, Amos Underhill. Amos ran a boarding house and became a valuable set of patriot eyes and ears, collecting information for Woodhull's reports. British troops often stayed at the boarding house, and it was easy to eavesdrop through the thin wooden walls. 
While Amos didn't personally know Talmadge, much less Washington, he became a permanent proxy for the ring in New York through Woodhull. Two more valuable additions joined the Culper Ring in spring and summer of 1779. Like Amos, they were both permanent New York residents. 55-year-old James Rivington was a well-known printer and bookseller who also managed a popular tavern. His newspaper provided staunch support for King George, and Rivington was considered an ardent loyalist. In fact, he supported independence early on in the war. He simply found that as a New Yorker under British occupation, business was better if one served the Redcoats. In short order, his tavern became one of the premier meeting places for British officers. This gave him perfect access as an intelligence agent. Rivington overheard dozens of conversations a day, and he was always listening for valuable information. He would even ask direct questions of his British patrons that would likely have aroused suspicion if they hadn't come from the man pouring the ale. But Rivington had no way to communicate the valuable intelligence he gathered to the rebels. He couldn't be seen leaving the city regularly, and it was too risky for him to write letters that could be found. Protecting his cover was vital, even if he was alone. Rivington had to bide his time, establishing his cover until he was able to find a way to contribute directly to Washington's espionage network. Then, his young neighbor asked for a job. 26-year-old Robert Townsend was a shopkeeper with a store up the street from Rivington. He was also an acquaintance of Woodhull's and one of the first men Woodhull recruited in New York. When Townsend joined the ring, he became known as Samuel Culper Jr. in all of his correspondence to Talmadge in Washington. With two covert agents codenamed Culper, Woodhull and Townsend, the Culper Ring had finally earned its namesake as a secret ring of spies. When Townsend approached Rivington, asking to write for his Tory newspaper, he didn't know the tavern keeper was secretly a patriot. Townsend simply saw the opportunity to gather more information from the British who frequented Rivington's bar. But by July of 1779, Townsend had uncovered Rivington's true loyalties and added Rivington's intelligence to his own. The ring had a new member, and the Culpers had successfully infiltrated the British stronghold of New York City. George Washington was thrilled with Major Talmadge and Abraham Woodhull's successful expansion of the fledgling spy agency. Intelligence was gathered by Rivington, Townsend, and Woodhull, then sent to Talmadge, who summarized his agent's reports and gave Washington a complete overview of the current intel. The network was working seamlessly, and its effects were powerful. Washington was able to send troops to cut off valuable supply lines and intercept British ships as they approached New York. He was almost always one step ahead of the Redcoats, thanks to the Culper Ring. But it was only a matter of time before something went wrong. George Washington and his Culper Ring were soon to be confronted by the greatest betrayal in American espionage history. A Continental General, one of George Washington's most trusted battlefield commanders, was supplying information to the Redcoats. 
This general also offered the surrender of one of the most valuable forts in the Hudson River Valley. When his agents discovered this treachery, Washington was stunned, but not too stunned to react. His order was simple. The turncoat general was to be brought to justice. But first, he had to be found. The Culper Ring was officially hunting Benedict Arnold. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode about the Culper Ring's pursuit of the traitor and their lasting legacy in the annals of spy history. For more information on the Culper Ring, among the numerous sources we used, we found Thomas B. Allen's book, George Washington, Spy Master, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Espionage and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Espionage, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Espionage on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Espionage is written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy.